Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Um, thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, that you are the living word. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to um, understand your word. And God, I thank you for difficult sections of scripture that, um, that reveal your character, um, that remind us that um, we don't see the whole picture, but also opportunity to be reminded that you are good, that you're loving, you're sovereign. And you're working your goodwill and purpose out for your glory and for the good of your blood by people. So God, I pray that you would just uh, uh, superintend over this time. Uh, Spirit of God, would you uh, give me um, uh, just even insight into this passage as I'm uh, teaching it here this morning. And uh, Lord, anything that, uh, that I may uh, get wrong, uh, any way that I may uh, uh, not bring you glory, God, would you, uh, would you just uh, correct that? please. We love you. We thank you that you love us and pray, God, that you would uh, just do a new work in each of our hearts this morning for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So yeah, we are, uh, that's uh, an interesting section of scripture that Heidi just read. Uh, Thank you for reading it so well. Um, Probably about 20 years ago when the Lord was um, either drawing me to himself for the first time or drawing me back to himself, um, I had, either way, I had been in the world, uh, kind of chasing my own dreams, my own plans. And, um, and I remember when the hound of heaven was coming after me, uh, I think I've told this story before, he started um, using other men to invite me to different Bible studies and to dad, the family shepherd, promise keeper, stuff like that. And um, one friend of mine invited me to uh, Cherry Hills Bible Church, which was, a, I don't know what, what kind of church it is today, but it was a great church then. And I went to a men's Bible study um, several weeks in a row, and they gave testimonies. The men gave testimonies as to how the Lord worked in their life. And I remember um, testimony after testimony of men saying that they put their full uh, trust in Jesus, uh, that they were finding all their hope and comfort in Christ. Um, At the same time, the Lord wrecked them. Like, the, the God brought trial in their life. And I'm going, I told, I remember telling Nancy that, like, I don't know that I want anything to do with this. I'm actually afraid of it. I'm afraid of, if I, if I buy in, if I say yes, um, does that mean that, um, that there are trials coming upon me? And I remember, I remember thinking through that. And so, um, at that time, I, did, I decided not to follow the Lord, and I continued to um, follow uh, my own uh, wicked desires. Last night, on another side of the coin, um, we were driving to Denver to, um, to celebrate one of my niece's college graduation from Denver University. And I, I really wanted to go to just uh, to encourage her and encourage the family. We don't see them a whole lot. But at the same time, I didn't really want to go. I had plenty to do. I'm kind of a last minute Charlie and preparing for sermons and whatnot. Um, but I decided to choose to do something righteous, and that is, is to support my niece. And next thing you know, um, we're not even south of, of 34 and I-25, like two feet, and it's like stop and go. There's this cowboy, there's this country and western geek that's doing some kind of concert in Denver. That's, 
that's snarling all the traffic and then it's raining and hailing. It took us two and a half hours to get down there. I wanted to go in, say hi, um, have some, um, some, some uh, pulled pork and a donut and then get back up north. And next thing it took me, instead of an hour to get down there, it took me two and a half hours to get down there. And I was just going, God, what did I, like, just complaining in my heart, like, God, I'm trying to do a good thing here. And like, you're, um, I'm, I'm not going to have enough time to do a sermon. I'm feeling sick. I'm tired. What's up with that? And I don't know if you have ever been in one of those two places where, um, where you are fearing that if you are all in with God that he's going to bring some type of calamity upon you. Or the other side of it is, is that, um, that if you do everything right and he doesn't reward or bless you for doing everything right, that you're going to get mad at him. And so does God have any obligation to bless us or show us favor in response to the way that we live? Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, and arguably he is the wealthiest, most successful human being that has ever lived. And he's, he's writing this at the end of his life, and he has seen it all, he's had it all, and now he's trying to make sense of it all. He says in verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. Not in my meaningless life, but in my short life. Uh, Vain, if you remember, is hevel, the Hebrew word for mist or vapor. What he's saying is that my life has passed by like that, and I've seen it all. And I still can't make sense of it. Someone once said, inside of every older person, is a younger person asking the question, what happened? And I think no matter what age you are, you can say that, right? You see your kids growing up before you, go, man, like where did time go? Much of what Solomon saw didn't add up. Life under the sun is a paradox. Many things are upsetting. In his life, where they were upsetting, and in my life, they're upsetting. In your life, they're upsetting. Um, I, just, um, I just had... Uh, a phone call with a friend of mine um, who I um, so respect, who loves Jesus, um, who told me that the people that led him to Christ in high school, in the church that he grew up with, sexually abused him. Like, how do you, how do you make sense of something like that? Or how about the mom that, um, or, and dad that have done everything right? They've followed Jesus. They've served well. They gave well. They loved each other well. And it's one miscarriage after the other miscarriage. Life is a paradox. Life does not add up. He he says this. He says in verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What he saw is that, that righteous people who are doing righteous things died young and while wicked people who did everything wrong, who were hardened criminals, lived a long life and in many cases received esteem and favor and wealth and comfort. We've all got some examples of these type of things, of good people who died young or, or good people that had bad things happen to them. And I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about um, Cindy Kukas. Remember Cindy? 
Um, Cindy um, is a, Cindy was a young lady who was imperfect, like you and I are imperfect, who sought to follow the Lord. That she, um, she came to Christ and she desired to follow Christ. She did everything in her power and by the Spirit of God to follow after Christ. And God, in his providence, decided to give her cancer and take her home, leaving a husband and two small kids behind. That's a paradox that doesn't make sense. And meanwhile, there's wicked people, hardened criminals who live to a ripe old age. The psalmist said this in Psalm 73. He says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's complaining to God. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, he says, and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. God, why are they not being, receiving any pain from you the way they're leaving, living, and I'm living my life in submission to you? And people are trying to kill me? The paradox is that a good person can die young and a wicked person might live a long life. And some in, uh, in Israel, certainly Solomon, when he wrote this, may have thought that since some righteous perished in their righteousness, they must not be righteous enough. Isn't that a pretty plausible conclusion? That if, that if good people die, get cancer, miscarry, maybe they weren't good enough. So I need to be better. Therefore, they should pursue righteousness with more intentionality and more vigor in order to prolong their life and gain favor with God in other ways. So he responds to this in verse 16. Do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself, overly, make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He means this, don't strive to be good and righteous and wise so that you can live a long life and grasp many things. That should not be the motivator. It may not happen. It's good to be righteous. It's good to be wise. It's good to strive to to live an upright moral life. But when is good good enough, as the book says? When is good good enough? You see, we can never force or coerce God to bless us or extend our life because of our righteousness. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing at all. And when you believe you deserve blessing and favor from God, as a result of your right living, we have the wrong perspective. Righteous and wise living for the sake of any type of gain is self-serving and will ultimately destroy you. That there's, there's something that we're taught in the Western world that if we just live a certain way, if we just raise our kids a certain way, if we just treat our spouse in a certain way, that we're going to be blessed. And the only blessing that we're guaranteed is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's enough. That's enough. We get the whole enchilada. We get him now. And we get all of him in his physical presence later. (laughs) 
This is being overly righteous and wise. Now I want to say it again. He's not saying don't be righteous or seek wisdom, but don't stake everything on being wise and righteous. You see, the, the dogged pursuit, the all-out pursuit of righteousness and wisdom for the sake of any type of gain, it can lead to pride. It can lead to pride. I've got the degrees. I've got the house. I've got the income. I've got the wife. I've got the kids. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in verse 17, he shows us the other side of the coin. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. I had to ask myself, well, is it okay to just be a little bit wicked? Do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Some might think, like I thought after I went to those Bible studies, that since I have, um, that since God doesn't promise me anything, a certain life, I'm just going to go have fun. I'm going to continue my path of wickedness. Um, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that I was saved by grace, but I was trampling upon God's grace. Paul says, should we continue sinning that grace may abound ever more? And the response is what? May it never be. May it never be. That's, that's living um, overly wicked. It's, it's presuming upon and trampling upon God's grace. And he says that by doing that, he asks the question, why should we die before your time? And this could be referring to two types of death. In early death, as a result of foolish living, even though our days are numbered, that somehow that when we live foolishly, we don't tend to live long. Kind of along those lines, I don't know, I'm just kind of in a storytelling mood, maybe it's to hold back the tears. Um, but I've had shoulder issues lately, I've been going to the PT, you know, it's just from, from my workout routine. And uh, on my last day of physical therapy, before I went to physical therapy, I decided to do a workout where you walk on your hands. And I, um, um, I think there's five rounds, um, and the first round and the third round, I decided to like fold like a, like a broken pretzel and fall on this shoulder. And I go into the PT, the PT, and I tell my wife, and like, nobody has sympathy on me. It's like, you, you get what you deserve. The song that says you don't always get what you deserve is wrong. You, uh, no, actually, it is right, because that grace, you don't get what you deserve. Anyway, it could be referring to two types of death, an early death as a result of foolish living, and it could, uh, could refer to eternal death as a result of not knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Verse 18 points back to verses 16 and 17. He says, take hold of the advice to not be overly righteous and overly wise, and don't withhold the advice to not be overly wicked and foolish. It's good to avoid both of these. They lead to disappointment. They lead to destruction. They lead to death. So how do I do this? Solomon says this in verse 18b. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God will not be overly wicked or overly foolish or overly righteous or overly wise. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I'm thinking, great. One more thing to be afraid of. Now I've got to be afraid of God. I thought God loved me. I thought God wanted a relationship with me. 
I grew up in the church where if you just do that one more time, God's going to punish you. Is that the fear of God? Is that the fear of God that we're asking about here? God does love you. He does want a relationship with you. And it's in this relationship where we learn what it means to fear God. And we struggle with the Hebrew word for fear because there's not a close enough English equivalent. Holy fear is not terror. It's not dread. It's not harm. But it's a proper and worshipful regard for all that God is in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his mercy, and in his love. One commentator said this, the fear of the Lord is a state of mind in which one's own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's. See, that's what I, that's what I was being called to. When I was afraid that, that trials would come upon me, it was, that was the wrong fear. A fear of God is actually saying, God, I want you to, I want to give my entire life to you because of who I know you are and what I know you've done for me. You see, a proper fear of God keeps us from being overly righteous and from being overly wicked. Fearing God is a reverence and an awe of God that compels us to live a life pleasing to him. Not so that we get anything back from him, but in response to who he is and what he's accomplished through Christ. Living righteously is an outflow of fearing God. It instructs and motivates us on how to live. The fear of God is truly the beginning of wisdom. And if you live a life now, this side of the cross, that is overly righteous, it might be motivated by a false understanding of who God is and what Jesus accomplished. If you're thinking that you've got to serve here or give this much or do X, Y, and Z so that you can have favor with God, you're wrong. That's being overly righteous. But it's when you gaze at the cross, when you look at God's character and what he's done, and you understand what a sinner you are and what a great savior he is, you're going to be compelled. Would you take a message, please? I'm just kidding you. Would you let us know, Pat, if that's anything needs to be prayed for? Okay. Is Bill okay? Good. Okay. Might do it today. Okay. Very good. Yeah. No, no problem at all. I'm just take, let me just take a minute and pray for Bill. God, I just thank you for Bill, um, Jolene's brother. I thank you for... Um, that God, even though we don't put our hope in doctors and um, technology and all that, God, we put our hope in you. We just thank you for uh, the science and technology and the minds that you've given people to be able to um, put stents in and put pacemakers in. And just, we pray, God, for wisdom for the docs. And we pray for peace for Bill and Jolene and Jolene's mom and Pat. And I just pray, God, that what you're doing through the doctors and this pacemaker would bring you all tons of glory and give opportunities for gospel proclamation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was just trying to think of how to explain fear. I think fear is a hard concept. The fear of God is a hard concept to understand. 
you know, especially when you come from certain religious backgrounds, I think. And I just, I just wrote these down. So um, here's a few steps to understand how to fear God. One is, uh, first and foremost, is understand who he is. You've got to understand his character. Yes, he's a just God. Yes, he's a holy God. But he's a lopsidedly loving and graceful God. Two, understand what he has done through, in, through the person of Jesus Christ. And I might, I added a third one, understand the purpose of the law. Are we to live our lives in obedience to what God has written in his word? Absolutely. But it's in response to his character and to what he's done. That's the foundation for fearing God. We go into verse 19 and the preacher, unsurprisingly, still wants us to be wise. He realizes that being wise is the right thing to do. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. There's no guarantees that living wisely is going to give you a better life, but it increases your odds, actually. Increases your odds. Um, the, somebody once said that the, the, plans, the plans are man's and the odds are God's. You know, it's, I mean, God is going to do what he wants, but it increases the odds when we, uh, to, to live long and to have less um, trouble um, when we live wisely. Not a guarantee. Verse 20, let's see here. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rules were in a city. All the collective wisdom of the smartest people in any city or nation can't solve the paradox that we saw in verses 15 and 16. Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? Not all the wisdom in the world. Um, no country can be great enough or prosperous enough to stop the age-old paradox that is mentioned in 15 and 16. Why is that? We just prayed, I just prayed and thank God for all the ingenuity that he's given mankind to fix a heart that would not be able to be fixed 50 years ago. So why will, not, why will all the collective wisdom not be enough, all the smartest people together not be enough to solve the paradox that we saw in 15 and 16? It's one word. It's because it's sin. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is where Paul got all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. And he responds, they've all turned aside. Together they've all come, become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 21, do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Do you know somebody that's a pretty good person? I, I do. I know some really good people. Some are Christians, some are not. And sometimes um, when I find out that a really good person did something sinful, especially when it's against me, I'm surprised. Why am I surprised? Have you ever been shocked or hurt when somebody slandered you or talked behind your back or got angry with you? You, you just didn't see it coming. 
We should think the best of one another. But on the other hand, don't be surprised when the other person sins against you or curses against you. And why should we not be surprised? Look at verse 22. Your heart, my heart, every human being's heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I know my heart. I can't believe the things that are rattling around in my head at times. It's so much easier to see the sins of other people against me rather than to see my own sin against other people. That's a law of nature, I think. So a principle is, is don't focus on other people's sin because you are just as sinful. So, so far we've talked about all have sinned and are in need of a Savior. I would add this, that, that um, just because other people are going to hurt us doesn't mean we shouldn't get close to them. We should actually get close enough to other people so that they do hurt us. How do you know if you're close enough to me? Ask my wife, ask Bonnie, ask Gary, ask Pat, ask Chris, ask Krista, ask Mitch. I've hurt you. And I don't, I don't want you to do that. But it gives you an opportunity to, to uh, pray for my dry, shriveled up soul. It gives you an opportunity to rebuke me. It gives you an opportunity to forgive me. All of sin are in need of a Savior, and we need to get close enough to other people, close enough so that we will be hurt. And when we are hurt, we're to look more at our own sin. And all of this leads to a healthy fearing the Lord. Verse 23, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. All this, the paradox of good lives being cut short and wicked lives being allowed to live long, all of this, the sin and the wickedness I see coming from other people towards me and the sin that are like waves hitting the shore that come from me against other people. I understand, I'm trying to understand the paradox, but I can't grasp it. Paul says, why can't I, can, why can't I do the things I want to do? Verse 24, he says, that which has been far off and deep and very deep, who can find out? It's too much. It's too much for us to understand or grasp. It's too deep. It's a puzzling paradox of reality. The suicide of a teenager, the child who is molested, the young mom who dies of cancer. We're not meant to fully understand it. Isaiah says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In verse 25, he said, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He seeks to know wisdom and the scheme or the sum of things, the kind of wisdom that, that, makes, that, that would make sense of all the uh, wickedness um, in this world. And then he, and he, so the question is, why does wickedness exist? How does it all add up? Did God create wickedness? And he has five findings in the final couple of verses. 
Number one, we're tempted and trapped by the allure of wickedness and sin. It's 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, the woman is a picture of wickedness and a picture of sin. And she's knocking at every one of our doors. It's our unredeemed flesh that wants to still trap us into living our life according to our own desires and plans rather than according to God's desires and plans for us. Sin is a trap. It's not a black hole. And there's no escape from sin and wickedness through human wisdom. Next, he found that there's hope. The end of verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her, sin in the flesh, but the sinner is taken by her. The way of escape is pleasing God. We escape her by not being overly righteous, but by pleasing God. Now, I want to, if you know Jesus, you are already um, pleased by God. He's already pleased with you because of your union with Jesus. That there's nothing that can, there's nothing you can do that would cause him to leave you or forsake you. But that truth alone should motivate you to want to please him. Do you understand that paradox? He's already pleased with you because he sees you, uh, your sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. He sees you um, as righteous. And that should motivate us to want to please him. Number three. Number one, the way of escape is pleasing God. Excuse me, number one, uh, we're all, we are tempted and trapped by the lure of wickedness and sin. The way of escape is by pleasing God. He wants to help us. When it pleases him, actually, when we call out to him and say, God, help. Three, everything still doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Like an accountant trying to balance the books over and over again, he can't always point to the error. Things just don't add up. Number four, he couldn't find an upright person. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. I don't know what you do with that, ladies. I mean, just own it. I think it's actually because they're probably a, a chauvinist uh, culture back then. But the, the point is, is that he can't find an upright person. He isn't saying there aren't good people who act good or righteously, but the universal truth is that all have sinned and there's not one righteous. And number five, God is not to blame for the wickedness in this world. See, verse 29, see, this alone I found, that God made man how? Upright. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made humanity upright. Genesis 1 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heavens and the livestock, over all the earth, over all that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was what? It was good. It was very good. 
You see, God is not to blame for the wickedness in this world. Adam and Eve were the first to scheme to be like God. It's called original sin. Everybody has it. I'm going to skip over some of this because we've got a time crunch. All of humanity has planned one scheme after the other, trying to be overly righteous and wise or overly wicked and foolish. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. This finding is massive. It's not God's fault. It's not the devil's fault. It's not the other person's fault. It's my fault. It's your fault. It's your sin. All the sin and brokenness in the world, all the paradox we see are a result of original sin of Adam and Eve, our great-grandparents. But let me, let me, lest there's any confusion, and hear me on this. When righteous people die young, it's a result of original sin, the brokenness in the world, not their sin. You follow me on that? Okay, because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a wealth and health uh, prosperity movement out there that is distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ that says if you do X, Y, and Z, God is obligated to bless you A, B, C. And if calamity has come to your life in any way, you must not have prayed enough, you must not have had enough faith, you must have sinned in some way. And that's not a universal truth. That's the enemy lying to you. So yes, sin is the culprit. Sin is the reason that there is brokenness in this world. But it may not be your sin in this particular... Are you, am I clear on that? Are you Not if you are. Okay, this is huge, okay, because this is where the enemy brings condemnation. This is where we have a misunderstanding of God's character. So sin is a problem. Men have schemed to be um, righteous uh, like filthy rags. They have schemed to be wicked, but praise God, it's not the end of the story. God schemed as well. He schemed to make mankind. He made you and I in his image for a relationship with him. And then when our ancestors blew it and that we all were infected with original sin, he schemed to rescue us from our dead works and from our wickedness. I think my favorite passage in the entire Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for your sake, God made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Titus says this, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Salvation comes first, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That type of living is a response to what God has done. So I'm going to close off with this. Just, um, I think it's up on the board. You're supposed to give three-point sermons, but I'm going to give you six final things to think about. Number one, we're tempted and trapped by wickedness. Just know it. 
Just know it every day when you wake up. Um, that sin is knocking at the door. That the enemy is right there to lie to you, deceive to you deceive you. We're tempted and trapped by wickedness as long as we are in this flesh. The way of escape is to please God, not please ourselves. But remember, everything's still not going to add up, number three. Everything's not going to add up. Four, all have sinned. None are upright. Don't be surprised when other people sin. And don't try to moralize them into correcting their sin. The only solution for sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I, right there, can I uh, take a risk and ask you to pray for me and Nancy? Everything doesn't add up. Number three, all have sinned. None are upright. And honey, I hope this is okay. We're okay, by the way. This isn't about us. But we got, we got a dreaded uh, invitation in the mail yesterday. A dreaded invitation. A wedding invitation. It's a wedding invitation we've not been looking forward to. And that's um, my, my beloved sister who I love very much who's um, getting ready to marry her, um, her partner. And I don't know how to respond to it. I know that her sin is no greater than mine. I know that God designed marriage for one man, one woman. Everything does still not add up. Number three, all of sin, none are upright. Everybody needs Jesus. The only hope for my sis and her partner is Jesus. Number five, God is not the blame for wickedness. And number six, he is our only hope and joy. And what a hope and joy he is, amen? Let's pray. God, we bless you. We thank you for uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. God, I thank you that that, um, even salvation is a paradox. God, where where every human being um, deserves hell, eternal separation from you. And as hard as we work at being good, there's nothing we can do to fix it or correct it. And the beautiful paradox of grace that you set your eyes on us And you determined to give us faith in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And another paradox is that even inside of salvation, in the place where you never will leave us nor forsake us, that we still forsake you on a daily basis. Yet you continue to give us grace upon grace. And God, I pray that that grace upon grace would compel us to fear you and please you and to serve you and to give our lives fully to you. Because we know that right in the center of, of, of living for you and your will is, um, is fullness of joy. 
So God, don't let us be allured by uh, the... Um, by temptation and sin and the promise that somehow we can find hope and comfort and peace outside of the person of Jesus Christ. And God, as, uh, as believers, when we get ready to, um, to give a certain amount in the offering box or serve in a certain ministry or bring a meal to somebody or push a shopping cart back in or whatever it is, God, I pray that we would understand that there's no amount of service or sacrifice that is gonna gain us favor with you. We thank you that we have already received a maximum favor with you because of faith in Jesus Christ. And God, may that beautiful truth compel us and motivate us to give and to serve and to sacrifice and to come under, uh, to subject ourselves to you. All for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those blood-bought people that have yet to put their faith and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.